chapter 13 today, and in just a couple of minutes we're going to read it together as we always do. But today is, um, today is a turning point in our study of the, um, uh, of the book of Acts. And, um, you know, I was reminded that we, you know, we had to, to set our clocks ahead. And of course, if you have your smartphone, it does it for you, you know. But uh, all the other things like this clock on your stove and your microwave. I, I bet you, I bet you most of us, we probably don't even set the time on our microwave, right? It's probably been blinking 12 o'clock for the last 10 years, right? Well, that's all right. Maybe today you'll go back and say, oh, maybe I'm going to change it. So as they say, it's right a couple times a day, right? So, but, um, you know, but, uh, I don't know. You know, it's funny because this whole daylight savings thing, do you guys know the history behind that? It's really interesting, but it really goes back, um, you know, at least in, in, even in this country, it even kind of started in, in Europe. So we can kind of blame the Europeans for that. But, um, you know, maybe even like 250 years ago, the ideas of that, and there was different formulations of what it looked like, but it was Benjamin Franklin that kind of spurred that on, uh, and uh, then it kind of became law, then it wasn't. There's this whole interesting history behind it, but there was this idea that it would, um, by, by some that, that really were proponents of it, that it would save energy. And at some point, they did some calculations and thought that it saved about 10,000 barrels of oil a day. But there's a lot of people that say, no, it really doesn't help. But I mean, early on when the farmers were, were, um, you know, were sort of all for it, it would, they thought it would save candlelight. They would be able to save the wax and the candles because it would stay brighter later. So they would have to use less candles, right? So less energy. But, um, perhaps today, maybe it doesn't serve the same purpose. There's a lot of people on both sides of it. You know, and I, I believe in my fair share of, of conspiracy theories, and so I really think that it's a it's a conspiracy by all of the uh, the people in the coffee bean growing business, because you know you you lose an hour of sleep like we just did, and you man, am, am I right? And then you just like it's a it's a two or three cup of coffee morning, you know, but aren't we so fickle, you know? Because in the fall. You wake up and you may like, I love this daylight savings thing because you get an extra hour of sleep. But then in the spring, you wake up and you're just like, what is this daylight savings thing, right? And so keep going back and forth. But, um, but you know, um, it certainly reminds us that, that the time is changing. Things are changing and the weather is supposed to be changing. I don't know. Something's supposed to happen on Tuesday. That's what I'm hearing. It's the end of the world. Is that what it is? I guess if you, anybody going to venture out to Costco today or tomorrow and see what's left on the shelves, right? <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, run for the hills, right? It's the end of the world. So, uh, so we'll see what happens, of course, but, um, but the times are supposed to be changing, you know, it's interesting. And, uh, back in 1964, uh, the famous, uh, artist and singer, poet Bob Dylan wrote a very famous song called Times They Are a Changing. And uh, he wrote all about his his um, sort of perspective and viewpoint on things that were happening in the 60s. And we all know from history that the 60s were a very turbulent time in the history of the world, and especially in our country. And a lot of things changed in our society in the 60s. Uh, so the times were changing. And he uh, was uh, sort of... Um, you know, insightful to see things that were going on. He talked about changes in the government and changes in people's feelings towards things. And 
was uh, talking about rising floodwaters and how you better sort of uh, notice that the times are changing because they're going to move forward no matter what. And it's sort of um, appropriate for what we're going to look at this morning because, you know, we've been talking about how our study in Acts, um, we gave it the title of the unstoppable mission of the church or the church on mission. So you've probably heard me talk a lot about how um, in all of the book of Acts, we've seen so much of it already, how the Holy Spirit is moving and guiding and empowering the early church to really grow and to move forward, right? And move forward, they are. And so in Acts 13, what we're going to see is this is a time of transition. Because really for the early church and for the leaders, and we're going to we're going to meet some interesting people this morning in Acts 13. Um, that it really is, for the church, the times, they were changing. And they were changing fast. And so, there's going to be a lot that we're going to want to cover this morning in this chapter. But of course, as I, I like to try to do, just focus on one particular aspect. So we can kind of keep it simple and wrap our minds around it. But this particular passage in Acts 13, just the first 12 verses... It's, it's a really great story. It's kind of like a short film, and it has a great ending to it. There's some drama involved, and the, there's uh, some more, um, well, you'll see as we talk about it, so I don't want to give it all away, right? But in Acts 13, 1-12, what we see happening is we see Paul and Barnabas beginning the first missionary journey. We talk about Paul having three like major missionary uh, missions you know, journeys. And um, uh, this is the beginning of the very first one. And uh, so there's a transition here from really focusing on people like Peter and uh, the Jerusalem church to really focusing on the church in Antioch, which we kind of looked at within the last few weeks, this Gentile church, and how they are now going from this hub, this base of the church in Antioch, all to go to follow the Lord's great commission. Remember, to take the gospel, Jesus said for his disciples, in Jerusalem, which is where they started, Judea and Samaria, a little bit further out, and then to the ends of the earth, right? So that's what they're starting to do, to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we're going to read that together. This is Acts 13, and it's just the first 12 verses. So Acts 13, 1 to 12, and it says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas, and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And so here we go. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, it's not Salami, Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. That's where they started. And they had John to assist them. 
when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elamas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and he said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. So immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It's a great story. And so we're going to, I just want to kind of give like a sweeping overview of a, a bunch of things that are happening here that we really need to take notice of. But then we're going to just kind of park ourselves sort of at the end of this story, kind of talking about this interesting person, this Jewish magician who named himself Bar-Jesus and see what is going on with this guy and why, if you think about it, why did Luke, who was writing the book of Acts, the history of the early church, why did he decide that this was an important story to include in his letter, the book of Acts, right? And so first what we see, again, just kind of giving us an overview of where we're coming from and where we're, we're headed here. In Luke's account, right, he went back to the church of Antioch. If you remember from last week, we were looking at the church in Jerusalem again, but now from this point on to the rest of the book, the rest of our study, we are really looking at the, the gospel going out to the Gentile people from the church in Antioch. That's sort of their home base. It, you can look at it as sort of like the missions agency or the missions arm of the mother church in Jerusalem. So that is the church in Antioch, right? And we see in chapter 13 and then 14, it's the first missionary journey uh, of Paul. In 15 through 18 of Acts, it's the second one. And then 18 to 20 is the third journey. It's kind of give you a, a setup for the, the next number of weeks. And so this first journey that they go on begins with Paul and Barnabas. And they go, they're called to the island of Cyprus. It's interesting because that's where Barnabas was from. So he probably had some family and friends there. So he was excited to go and bring Paul along with him. But please notice who it was that was directing this missions trip. It wasn't the leadership of the church, although they're mentioned and we're going to look at them now. It was, and still is, the person of the Holy Spirit. That's really an important part of this passage. And again, we've talked about the Holy Spirit a lot, and we will continue to talk about the Holy Spirit. Because when we say the book of Acts is all about the church on mission or the unstoppable mission of the church, the whole reason is not because of the great skill and intelligence of the leaders and the early Christians. It's all because they did it 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember how the book of Acts really starts in chapter 2 with Pentecost? About Jesus giving the church the power and the person of the Holy Spirit? We see Him weave throughout every story in the book of Acts. And this, of course, is no different. So the Holy Spirit directs the church leadership to appoint its first true missionaries. They had been sharing the gospel everywhere they went. But this truly is, if you think about it, this is the very first missions trip of the church. Now, how many of you ever been on a missions trip? Maybe with this church or another church? Yeah, many of you have. Maybe it was just to New York, and maybe it was someplace else in this country, or perhaps it was international, going to a different country. It's all different ways to say that a church is sending out a team to go on a missions trip, or perhaps a church recognizing people in their midst that are called to be full-time, full-time missionaries. And they confirm them and commission them because of the call, and they send them out. You know, it's been said that a church really should gauge its health and its growth, not by its seeding capacity, but by its sending capacity. I like that much better, right? It's not about how many people are in the church and can we fill up all of the chairs or the pews. I mean, the Holy Spirit will do that. If we're learning and we're growing and we're serving together and we're growing healthy from the inside out because of our devotion and trust in the Lord, then He will increase the numbers. But that, that's His job. But perhaps our perspective and our focus should be, well, we want to we learn and grow and serve and then we want to send people out as they're called. Maybe to plant other churches and to become missionaries down the road or in another city or perhaps halfway around the world. But, you know, that's what the church in Antioch did. This is really the story of the very first missions trip. And we can learn a lot. We can learn a lot from this. And, and uh, we can notice that how did this missions trip start? It started by prayer and fasting and worship. You see that? It said that right at the beginning, after it mentions these interesting men, it says, while they were worshiping and while they were fasting... And then in verse 3, after they got the call from the Spirit, it says, then after fasting and praying like they did it again. Isn't that a great model for what every church should be doing? Together, praying and fasting. And so another aspect of um, commissioning missionaries or sending out a team is there's got to be some confirmation of that call by the people in the church and especially from the leadership, when you're talking about people that believe that they're called to be missionaries, you know, go into a foreign land, let's say, and, and serve the Lord each and every day as missionaries to a different people in a different culture. We see that here, that there's this interesting group of men that we meet that are leaders in the church of Antioch, and together they are praying and fasting and worshiping, and they hear from the Holy Spirit. And he sets aside two of them. And they confirm that calling. So we have this interesting group of men. You have Saul, who of course we know a lot about. The leader, he was a leader. He was a rabbi. He was a great teacher, a persecutor of the church before his conversion. We have Barnabas, who is from Cyprus. We know that he was a very upstanding man and very well respected in the church. 
We have Simeon, who is from Africa. We have Lucius from Cyrene. That's in what's today is Libya. That's North Africa next to Egypt. So also, uh, we would say another um, Christian from the, the northern part of the African continent. We have this man named Menaean, who it's really interesting. He grew up, it says, with Herod, the Tetrarch. Now this Herod that we're talking about is the same Herod that persecuted Jesus and beheaded John the Baptist. So think about how, even as I said earlier, we look around and we're a very diverse group. Here was this very diverse group of men who were leading this really first uh, Gentile church and they recognized they need to send people out to share the gospel. And that's going to be Paul and Barnabas. But look at the diversity. A couple of guys from northern Africa and we have Paul who used to be a persecutor of the church and, and Barnabas, he was sort of the, always sort of been the good guy, right? And then this guy, um, uh, Menaean, who grew up with Herod, it says. Could they have taken two more different paths in life? Actually, some, some scholars believe that the words in Greek mean that he was like, he was like a foster brother. He was maybe adopted into the family. So this guy, Menaean, who we don't really know much about, all we know is that for some reason he grew up in the household of Herod. When they were kids, they would play together. We see Herod goes in one direction regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. Menaean goes completely different. He is now a leader in the church of Antioch. Think back for a moment in your childhood, in your past, people that have come into your life, friends maybe that you had, and close friends, and maybe some people you haven't talked to in many years. And that's one of the values of Facebook, right? We can connect with lots of people from the past. But you see the paths that people choose in their lives. And perhaps you can think back to somebody that you were close with, and now you see, man, you don't know how they got off on this track or this track. You could take very different paths in life. And that's what happened with this man, Menaean, and his friend from his childhood, Herod. But what a diverse group of men it was that prayed and fasted together, seeking the leading of the Holy Spirit for their church. That is my desire and my goal as a spiritual leader here with other leaders that God calls and raises up in the church to pray over the church, to pray for each one of you, and to pray for the Holy Spirit's direction and leading and guidance. You know what? Because we're not going to get anywhere. If it's a church on a mission, we're not going to get anywhere if it's not by the leading and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Am I right with that? And so we need to all be praying for that together. So here's a great model of what church leaders should be doing. All from different backgrounds, but coming together to be unified. How many times does the Apostle Paul in his letters, all the the many letters that he wrote that we have in the New Testament, does he talk about unity in the church? He desperately uh, wanted unity in the church. So we see that Saul and Barnabas are called. Those are the two guys that uh, they lay hands on, they pray for them, and they send them out. So they go to the nearest seaport to them in Antioch, which was Seleucia, They hop on a boat and they sail over to the island of Cyprus. If you've never been there or you don't, can't picture it on a map, it's right in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. And so they get over to Cyprus 
And it's not a very large island, but they start on the eastern side in this city called Salamis. And it says that Saul and Barnabas go right to the synagogue. Now that's important because that was sort of Paul's modus operandi. That's what he always did. He went right to the synagogues. He went right to the Jews. But you know, that was changing as well. Remember I said times were changing. Paul really realizes here in this first leg of his first missionary journey that God is truly calling him to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. He went to the Jew first, which we know it says in Scripture, and that was his call originally. So he would go right to the synagogue. But from this point on, we see that they really are bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. And so it says also, it makes a note that John, that's John Mark, the one who wrote the gospel, was with them as a helper. He was sort of their assistant, maybe their errand boy, the guy who maybe kept the scrolls for them and helped them out. So they had a helper, an assistant with them. So from this coastal city of Salamis, they crossed over the island of Cyprus, all the way to the other side, I'm sure preaching the gospel all along the way. And they wind up, which is where we're going to stay for a few minutes, they wind up at this western, uh, this, co- this city on the western coast of Cyprus called Paphos. Now Paphos is important in Greek mythology because it's the birthplace, they say, of the goddess of Aphrodite. You don't really need to put that in your notes. Doesn't really quite matter to us, but it's interesting history, right? Um, but here's something else that happens, which is really more significant in this city of Paphos. The first thing we see is that Saul is now, for the first time, really called Paul. Because again, times, they are changing. And so we see that, yes, he went to the synagogue first. It was sort of what he was used to doing. But now... He recognizes God's true call on him to bring, him and Barnabas in this trip, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And so he even begins to use his name, Paul, his given Roman name. And so that's a big change as well in our story. A big transition that it says Saul, who is also called Paul. From this point on, we normally see him named as Paul. Unless he's talking about his past and his history, he is always called Paul from his point on. So, here in this city of Paphos, here's what happens. It's a really interesting story. So they get to this city, right? And there is this um, leader. He's sort of like a Roman governor, right? And so in the Roman Empire, um, the leaders and the emperor, they would... Uh, they would set out leaders in the different areas and the different regions, right, to make sure the to keep the peace, kind of make nice with the with the, the Jews and the other people, to make sure that there was peace and harmony, the Pax Romana, as they call it, the Roman peace, right? But to sort of also govern and make sure that what they believed and their laws were set into place among the, the indigenous people of wherever it was. And so there was what they called a proconsul, kind of like a a big word for a governor. So he was the leader of this city for the Roman Empire. And his name was Sergius Paulus. Okay? And so it says in our reading that he was very interested in the Word. It says in verse 7 
Sergius Paulus was a man of intelligence who actually summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the Word of God. So here is this leader. Can you imagine the excitement of Paul and Barnabas? Like, we're going to get to share the gospel with this leader. I mean, look at the things that could change from here. But then enters this really interesting character. And his name is Bar-Jesus. Now, we believe that he gave himself this name. Because Bar-Jesus really means Son of God. He was a Jew, but it says he was a magician. Which really means he was a sorcerer. So it doesn't just mean that he did magic tricks. It means that he actually believed, even though he was a Jew, believed that he could summon sort of the dark powers. Summon, as we want to call it, demons. And even perhaps Satan himself. He was dabbling in this. He was known for this in the area. Do you remember way back in, there was one of the earlier chapters, we met another sorcerer? Remember him? And we talked about how his downfall was that he wanted the power for himself of the Holy Spirit. Do you remember that story? When he saw the power of the Holy Spirit in the apostles, and he said, I want to get some of that power. How do I get that? How do I get that? Remember? The same thing is happening with this sorcerer. Because he sees Paul and Barnabas sharing the gospel, the good news about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit, and they're sharing it with this Roman governor, this proconsul, Sergius Paulus. Because he even was interested. He like drew them. He said, come and bring them to me. I want to hear about this Jesus, this Messiah who rose from the dead. And so this guy... Bar-Jesus, who was, sort of had some influence there, he stepped in to try to discredit their witness. To try to downplay the Gospel and show that he himself also had power. So he steps in, <clears throat> truly, to thwart the plan of God. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it says here in verse 8, but Elemas, that's another name given to Bar-Jesus. The magician, for that's the meaning of his name. It says he opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So that's really all that we know about this magician. But think about it this way. He was, this is very interesting, he was a Jew. So he would have been going into the synagogue. And this Roman governor, this proconsul, Sergius Paulus, he was interested in the Jewish faith, in the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? He was interested in him. Thank you, brother. Many blessings on you. Thank you. And so, um, and so what he was doing was, he was, and we gotta make sure we get this, he was mixing truth with a lie. See, he didn't just outright just say, I don't believe in God, I believe in Satan. He was a Jew who had influence in the synagogue, and influence in this Roman leader's life, who wanted to learn more about the Jewish faith, and he could have just been telling him about the Messiah that was coming, so that Paul, when Paul and Barnabas got there, he could have said, you know, if, if Bar-Jesus was teaching the Roman proconsul 
the proper uh, tenets of the Jewish faith, then Paul and Barnabas could have come in and could have said, yeah, you were taught about the Messiah, and here he is, and taught about Jesus, and could have led him to the Lord. It's kind of the way it should have worked, but here is this sorcerer looking for his own power and his own glory and his own fame. And so it's interesting because it says, look at what happens. Saul, in verse 9, that is sort of takes a really weird turn, the story does. But Saul, who was also called Paul, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. So this wasn't Paul doing it on his own. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he looked at Bar-Jesus intently and he said, and he calls him on the carpet for what he's doing. You son of the devil, I mean... He wasn't mincing words, right? I mean, this is Paul. This is the Apostle Paul, right? And this is kind of why we love him and we've grown to love him and reading all of his letters in the New Testament and seeing what kind of person he is, how passionate he is. Just think about Remember what he used to do? I mean, how he used to persecute the church with such passion and fervor, right? But now he's doing the same thing for Jesus And he's just calling it like it is. He says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? It's a great way to put it. Because that's what was happening. Because he was saying, look, you know, we were, he's almost talking to him like a fellow Jew. Like, you should have been teaching this Roman uh, leader about Judaism. And then we were going to come in and tell him about the true Messiah. But you're trying to make the straight, the straight path that the Lord is setting out, you're trying to make it crooked. And of course it was for His own gain and His own glory. And in verse 11 it says, Now, behold, and this is Paul, he's still talking to Bar-Jesus, the sorcerer. He says, The hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. So he causes him to be blind through the power of the Holy Spirit. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. That's all we know of him for now, is that he was blinded. So think about it. He already was spiritually blind. But now Paul really kind of seals the deal and says, you are physically blind as well. And what does that do? I mean, Bar-Jesus was trying to thwart the plan of God and the spreading of the gospel to this Roman governor. But God turns him on his ear and says, you're trying to thwart my plan. And he set him straight and blinded him so that now he had no influence. How about that? God taking the influence away from this one who would stand in the way of the spreading of the gospel. It's amazing. And here, just um, for for the time that we have left, I want to talk about the importance that I believe that Luke is placing um, on this part of the story by sharing it. You see, I had said that this was the first missions trip, right? And so they started by praying, and they started by fasting and worshiping. And then Paul and Barnabas were set out. Now they were sent out to share the gospel. Was there a guarantee from that point on that it would be easy? 
that they wouldn't hit any roadblocks, that there wouldn't be an enemy that they were well aware of that would try to stand in their way and thwart their progress, that enemy is still our enemy today. Scripture calls him Satan, the devil, our enemy. You know, as I was preparing for this message, I'm reading through it, I'm thinking there's so many things we could talk about. We could talk all about missions and how the church needs to be on mission and we need to be ascending church and and that's stuff that I, I wanted to mention, and it's, it's important. But as I'm thinking through, you know, it's, it's also, I want to recognize, what is God doing sort of in our church and, and in my life and just leading up to this particular Sunday? And you know, I had had an interesting conversation with a young friend who experienced witnessing someone being demon-possessed. On Wednesday night in our theology class, we happened to be in the chapter talking about the reality of Satan and about demons and what do the demons do and what they can't do and what is it the activities of Satan our enemy in the lives of the church and the nations and the believers and the unbelievers so for the past week or so I've been in conversation and studying in the word of God all about the reality of our enemy that there is spiritual warfare going on Even as we speak, we don't see it, but we know that it's true. And sometimes we recognize it happening in our lives or in the people around us. Not usually as extreme as an actual person being demon-possessed. But here, let me tell you why. This kind of came up in our conversation that I was having this week. Why do you think it is that when you hear missionaries that come from abroad in different countries that you might hear about demon possession but yet we look around in our country in the westernized society and say we don't really like come in contact with that it's not an everyday thing why is that well a big part of it is because many people around the world have opened the door to the enemy by dealing with things like black black magic or voodoo or idol worship serious idol worship for their whole lives and these types of things open the door for Satan to get a foothold. Now, these are not things that are really prevalent in our society, but yet, we can certainly still be prone to opening the door to our enemy gaining a foothold. Now, I truly believe 100%, and I hope you believe right along with me, that it's absolutely impossible for Satan or one of his demons to possess a true believer in Jesus Christ. Why would that be? Because we have the Holy Spirit within. So I don't think the Holy Spirit is going to allow a demon to take up residence in one of his people. Right? So we don't have to fear that. We sang that earlier. Whom shall I fear? We don't have to fear because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. But we know that it happens. So here's why we need to be aware of it as a church. Because when we say we're going to go and share the gospel and live it out, we're going to take it to the streets of New York or we're going to go halfway around the world or maybe just to your home and your family or your workplace, you will come up against opposition because there is an enemy who is trying to thwart the spreading of the gospel. Because remember, we know, we're talking all about this on Wednesday night in our theology class, I'm giving a plug for it, right? We are right there looking at these chapters. What does it mean that Satan is real and who is he and what can he do and what can he do? What about these demons, these fallen angels? Are they real? Can they really possess somebody? And what is it that they do 
for Satan himself. Well, the importance is that we recognize that we know the end of the story. And we know that Satan loses and God wins, to put it succinctly. However, we also know very clearly from Scripture that Satan is trying to take away worship from the one true God. Right? He is trying to take, he knows that he is doomed. But he is trying to take away worship from God so he will never be able to possess us, but he can certainly claw his way at us. Do you know it says in Scripture that, that Satan, our enemy, is like a, a roaring lion prowling around looking for someone to devour? I mean, maybe sometimes we come across those Scripture and we'd like pass right over it. Like, yeah, I know it's true, but I don't want to dwell on that, right? Well, yeah, but we don't have to fear that. But we do know if we open the door, perhaps in our context, maybe it's a sin, an unrepentant sin. An unrepentant sin that you're allowing Satan to get the best of you in that sense. And not repenting and giving it up to the Lord. Perhaps it opens a door to Satan, our enemy, distracting us, getting us off path. He was trying to do that with the early church. See, they're sending out their first missions team in Paul and Barnabas. And already the enemy is saying no. Not if he could have his way. So in the very first leg of their journey, they go into the synagogue, that's nice, they get to the other island of Cyprus, and Barnabas is like, yeah, this is my hometown, I'm from here. And all of a sudden, they meet this governor, and he wants to know about Jesus. They're like, this is easy. And all of a sudden... Here comes this guy, Bar-Jesus. That means Son of God. He gave Himself the name Son of God. Again, He was mixing truth with a lie. And I would tend to say that that is even more dangerous than someone who is just blatantly against God and admits it and says it. Right? But when somebody is taking the truth and mixing it with a lie, and so you might believe that you have the truth, but you're deceived. You see, our adversary is a deceiver. And quickly, I want to mention this. This is from our study on Wednesday nights. The activities of Satan. He is a tempter. Do you remember what he did for Jesus in the desert? He tempted him. Why? He was trying to cause the Lord to deviate from the path and purpose for which he came. That's what Satan was trying to do in the desert. He was trying to get Jesus to deviate from the will and mission of God. He wanted the Lord Jesus to assert His own independence from the Father. Think about that. In the desert, Satan was tempting Jesus, trying to get Him to say, you don't need God. You can be powerful on your own. You know what? That's the same story He told Adam and Eve, isn't it? It's the same thing. But here's what we need to know as a church. He tells us that too. He tries to get us to separate ourselves from the power and the will of God. He tries to uh, get us to become independent from the Father. We don't need to trust in Him. We don't need to give up control to God. Satan is a deceiver and a liar. In relation to the nations, we know that our enemy is out to deceive the nations 
as a whole, nations and leaders thinking that they can govern righteously and bring about peace in the world apart from the presence and the rule of Christ. How about the unbelievers? We know that it says in 2 Corinthians 4 that He blinds the eyes of those who do not believe. Satan blinds their minds so that they will not accept the Gospel. That's what he was trying to do by sending this sorcerer, right? Right to step in the way on this first missionary journey. And then finally, to us as believers, he tries to get us to sin and to remain in a state of unconfessed and unrepentant sin. See, Satan is our adversary. He is called one that is a counterfeit. He's trying to set up a counterfeit kingdom, right? Just like Bar-Jesus, he had the truth, he knew the truth, he was a Jew, but he was also dabbling in sorcery and, and summoning demons to give him the power, mixing truth with a lie. That is what we call a counterfeit. But you know, those in our government that work with currency and money, those who are out to stop, those who would launder money and create money, right, illegally, do you know how the people in the government, CIA, FBI, how do they learn to spot counterfeit money? They learn by studying the real thing. They don't spend years studying counterfeit money so that they can recognize it. They spend years studying the real and true thing so that when they see a counterfeit, they can spot it a mile away. That is what we are called to do. We are called to study and to learn and to grow with the one true God. Because there is a counterfeit out there. We know from the end of the story, it will be in the person of the Antichrist. You want to know that? Go ahead and read the end of the story. Read Revelation. And you'll see. Because Satan doesn't want to give up. But again, of course, we know our hope, as we said, whom shall I fear? We know that he wins. And finally, finally, he says finally one more time. Look at verse 12. Can we put verse 12 up on there? This is how the story ends. I love this ending to this short little film, this short little story. After Paul blinds Bar-Jesus... And then he goes about wandering blind looking for people to help him. No more influence. Satan is defeated in this little battle. It says the proconsul, this governor, Sergius Paulus, the one who wanted to know the truth, it says he believed. Very simply put. He believed when he saw what had occurred. He saw the miracle. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. It wasn't the miracle that made him believe. It was the truth of the Word of the Lord that Paul shared with him. It was God's Word that had the power. You see that? Jesus performed many miracles. But He didn't do that for His own glory. He didn't do it to leave it there. We know that He had thousands of people following Him, right? Thousands of people following Him. Why? Because of free food and the great show of all the miracles. But... Jesus performed the miracles to give authority and confirmation to His power and the power of the Father. So that's what happens here. The Holy Spirit gives Paul the power to cause this sorcerer to be blind. To take away his influence. 
And what does it do? It brings about the goal that they had all along was to lead the proconsul to be a believer in Jesus Christ. So it says, then he believed when he saw the miracle, but it was the fact that he was astonished at the teaching of the word of the Lord. So let's remember that as a church as well. When we're going on mission and sharing the faith, we have to always be in the word of God. For it is alive, it is active, it is powerful. God speaks to us through his word. So we need to remember when we go out to share the faith, it's not just kind of giving a slick presentation, right? Or just kind of going through a few points and say, okay, do you want to believe now? But ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit leading you to share the truth. Because the truth is what sets people free. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your amazing word. We thank you for these stories we've been able to encounter and these great characters and people all along the way. God, we thank you that it brings it to life. We understand the reality of what truly happened so many years ago. But Lord, we also thank you that we can learn so much about what it means to be a church, to be a church on mission, to be praying and fasting, to be worshiping you, looking for your direction, and that we would move forward as a church, learning and growing and serving together, but not of our own accord or our own power, but by the leading of the Holy Spirit who is within us. God, help us to always remember as well when we go out on mission each and every day to share our faith, that there is an enemy who is trying to thwart your plan. And God, that we wouldn't put our focus on him, but we would recognize his reality and what he can and can't do, because we know in the end that you, of course, are more powerful. So we should fear not, because you will always be there with us, leading and guiding if we put our faith and trust in you. So God, we thank you for that. Thank you for that that vivid reminder this morning. But help us to not only be challenged, but be encouraged that we can go forth and share the good news of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior, and the hope that he represents for this world, the only true hope and peace for this world. And that God, no matter what obstacles we may come across, that in the end we can trust in you because it is the power of you and your word to us that will overcome. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.